0: taken from Acts chapter 5 verses 1 to 16 and can be found on page 1096 of your church bible now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property with his wife's full knowledge he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles feet When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen. The feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join in, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, as we continue in our series through the Book of Acts, we come to an interesting passage. In fact, one of the most difficult passages probably in the whole New Testament. Um, Remember where we've got to. We've been following a series called The Living Church. And we've seen how God gave a sense of purpose to that early church, how God worked to Um, fashioned their leadership. How God filled them with the spirit. How um, God gave them extraordinary awe and uh, a sense of wonder at his miracles and his power. How uh, together they were able to share and experience a dynamic of community life. And then we come suddenly to this passage in Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira. It's almost as if the blue skies of this idyllic church suddenly well up with huge thunderclouds and the storm breaks. Why this terrible interruption in the story? Why do we suddenly find everything turns around and we have a a narrative which in some ways seems to send us back into the Old Testament? Well, let me suggest two points very simply to begin and then I'm gonna try and unpack this with um, caution because this is a difficult passage and we're on holy ground I think. And the truth is that for thousands, well at least for, the, for, the, for, for hundreds of years, right from the very early centuries, uh, people have wrestled with this passage and tried to understand what was going on. But, but just two quick uh, thoughts before going further. First of all, it seems very clear in the book of Acts that this is not an unfortunate interruption. It would be possible to see this and almost just wish that this passage we're not there. And just sort of go smoothly from the, the, the part before where it talks about the community and the believers together, and then straight into the next, or the part at the end of our passage, and, and, then, and then the story of the, of the apostles and their great faith and the wonderful uh, things that God was doing. But it seems very clear from the passage that this is not just um, an interruption in the story, it's not just an unfortunate moment. It's a necessary and essential lesson for the early church. There is something here that they need to learn. And that's very clear because just before our passage, Barnabas, if you remember, is raised up as an example. Barnabas sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet an example of the extraordinary generosity and koinonia fellowship that the church was experiencing. And then it continues on, now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, also sold a piece of property. This isn't suddenly something different that's happening here, we're in the same world. Something is happening here that comes out of the same community. And yet, if the example of Barnabas is a positive and godly example, the example of Ananias and Sapphira, in some way that we need to explore goes terribly, terribly wrong. So this isn't just a sort of an unfortunate interruption. This seems to be continuity. And there seems to be here something really important and essential that the church need to learn. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, is that paradoxically I think we can actually take comfort from the fact that this passage is here. It frees us from the temptation of seeing the early church as an idyllic, uh, almost perfect and over um, embellished community. And it's true that down the ages sometimes the church has been tempted to imagine that first community in Acts chapter two and the early, the early chapters there in Jerusalem as this idealized community. Maybe an idealized community which in reality never existed. And this chapter saves us from that. Because suddenly we are confronted with the reality of sin, the reality of judgment, the reality of something that goes on which, which actually comes and, and throws everything into chaos, at least for a time. Actually, we can take comfort from that because it's absolutely in keeping with the whole Bible. As you look through the Bible time and time again, you come across passages and you think, what in the world is that doing here? What's that in the Bible for? And yet as you dig, you discover that the Bible is a book which tells the story of real people. It tells the story of God working in real people, with real people. The Bible is no idealized history. The Bible shows us the good and the bad, the rough and the smooth. And here we have therefore told in very open and honest terms a story which in many ways is sordid, is threatening, is rather shameful and yet there it is. So we can take comfort. The first church was not perfect any more than we are perfect. And yet God was at work. So what was the problem? You'll remember the situation then. Ananias and Sapphira come and they also, just like Barnabas and like many others in the early church, they give of their possessions to the church. They lay them at the apostles' feet. And yet, rather than it being welcomed, they are roundly condemned by Peter. And both of them die What's going on? What's at work in this passage? Well, as I said, ever since the early centuries, commentators have attempted to understand what the issues were at play here. Some people, some of the early church fathers, Gregory of uh, of Nazianzus and Jerome, who translated the Bible into Latin, they um, understood that what was being condemned here was the greed of Ananias and Sapphira. Rather than giving what they had fully to the church, they keep some of it for themselves. There's a sense of greed there. But it does seem rather extreme. <laughs> I mean, after all, greed is everywhere, isn't it? And, and actually, when we look at the passage, we discover that they are in fact lauded in a sense because their act of generosity is a similar act of generosity to Barnabas. They're, they're not being greedy simply because they don't give 100%. They give 85%, which is extraordinary generosity. So there may be something in that, but that's certainly not the essential issue here. Others, um, St. Augustine, um, Clement of Alexandria saw this as a story of rebellion against authority and an opportunity for Peter symbolically to assert the authority that he's been given by Christ. And therefore he issues a sort of prophetic judgment and that judgment comes to pass. But the reality actually in the passage is that Peter um, isn't really the center of this at all. He's simply a mouthpiece. And uh, rather than in the Old Testament way sort of like speaking judgment, Peter actually simply speaks truth and denounces what's happening. And then it feels like the judgment comes naturally of itself. It doesn't seem that this is primarily there in order to, um, to, to, to bolster Peter's um, apostolic authority. Another more recent suggestion would be that this is, in some way, um, the example of a a sanction that comes against people who've been breaking their word to the community. We we know from from recent research and archaeology in Qumran that uh, the the Essene community, in particular in Qumran, had um, very strict rules about how people could could commit to giving legacies to um, to to the community. And and when they uh, made a commitment, and then they didn't keep to it, there were certain forms of disciplinary sanctions that were brought in. Um, But the problem is twofold. First of all, none of those sanctions involved killing the person. Um, And and perhaps more significantly in our passage in verse four, Peter makes it absolutely clear that um, Ananias and Sapphira are, are under no obligation They choose to give, they're not under an obligation to give everything, they they choose. They they, they have that money, that is their money, and they can do with it what they want. Another uh, and fourth possibility um, uh, comes from uh, John Chrysostom, who was a very early church father, Bishop of Jerusalem, and he um, made the parallel, which has often been made ever since, um, with an episode in the Old Testament. An episode in Joshua, chapter seven, where, Uh, the people fail to take Ai after having conquered uh, Jericho. And it's an amazing rejoicing as they conquer Jericho and then they try and take this tiny little village of Ai and they don't manage to do it. They're defeated and roundly defeated. And, And Joshua comes before God and he says, now what did we do wrong? And God said, you have tolerated sin amongst you. There is one amongst you who has kept for himself what should have been given back to God. And actually, the man whose name is Akan has uh, kept some of the plundered treasure from Jericho and he's hidden it under his bed. And because he's done that, it brings, um, it brings defeat and, and trauma on the whole community. And the result is that Akan and his family and all his possessions are stoned and then burned. A terrible uh, story of judgment. Well, maybe there are parallels and some of the language suggests that, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like that's the spirit of what's going on here. Um, and certainly, and particularly, we're now in the New Testament, aren't we? A New Testament which is governed by Christ and, uh, and, and the principles of Christ. Peter actually, in our passage, does not actually condemn them to death and certainly doesn't pick up stones and, nor any of the community here. It feels more like the reaction of Ananias and then of Sapphira is a reaction to being confronted with truth. But there is one thing that we can, I think, take at least from that last story, which is absolutely significant, it seems to me, in this passage, and that is that there is a sin here against community. There is something happening that is going to affect the whole community. In the story of Achan, it was about trying to purge the community of sin. In this story, it's about protecting the um, authenticity of the Holy Spirit community. There is a community issue. Yes, it starts with individual sin, Ananias and Sapphira somehow. But it actually overflows into the life of the community. Somehow their fraud threatens what God is wanting to do and the life of the community. So the big question is how? In what way does what they have done have repercussions in the life of the whole community such that Peter can stand up and condemn them in such a forceful way? Well, it seems to me that the the heart of the matter we can see in verse three. Verse three gives us this. Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received? for the land, and then he continues on. You have not lied to men, but to God. I'd like to suggest that the key word here is heart. You see that? Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Now in the description that we had at the end of the last chapter, it goes like this, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart, and mind. There was something about the work of the spirit that touched their hearts. Now what Peter is doing in facing Ananias and then Sapphira is he's not challenging them because they've made a mistake. He's not chiding them because of a lack of zeal. He's telling them that in some way their hearts are not aligned with the Spirit. And as a result, what they're doing is one thing and what, they are, and what they are believing in their hearts is another. Can you see that? There's a disconnect somehow, fundamentally a disconnect between their actions and their convictions. What it seems that they're doing is deliberately deceiving. They're pretending. Now, on one level, in a sense, I suppose, we all pretend, don't we? It would be impossible to be completely authentic all the time. But here's the thing. Um, in the passage, it seems very clear that what is, what is put up in, uh, uh, as an example is Barnabas. So we can imagine Ananias and Sapphira seeing Barnabas bring these, uh, the, 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 his the, the revenue from his sale of his, of his field, and they think to themselves, we want to be like that, so far so good. But then what they do is they pretend to be like Barnabas when actually they're not like him. Do you see that? In other words, they're going through the outward motions, but their heart is far away. And so Peter in discerning the issue, and we can assume I think from the passage that that wasn't just a one-off experience but in some way it was the fruit. The fruit of something else, of a commitment elsewhere. Peter speaks to them and says, Satan has so filled your heart that you're not lying to people, to the apostles or even to the church. You're actually lying to God. Here's how it works. You see, the unity given in the acts of the apostles to the church was not simply the result of their own intentions. It was the work of the Holy Spirit, yeah? The um, extraordinary acts of generosity, the sharing of their belongings, was not simply because they wanted to, um, to put themselves one above the other in generosity terms. There isn't a sort of generosity stake here. It's the fruit of the Spirit at work in their community. And it seems that by allowing Satan to fill their hearts, Ananias are going through the motions, but without it being the fruit of the work of the Spirit. And therefore, they're setting themselves up in some way against the Spirit's work in the church. And their attitude and their action threatens the very life of the community itself. I suppose the question is, what are they building on? What is it that grounds their actions? And it seems to be from the passage that it is not the work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but it is the work of an unholy Spirit. It is an alignment. Their heart is aligned with something else. Are they based on truth? Or are they based on lies. And what they've done in acting in one way and giving the impression that they're rooted in the spirit and that their lives are overflowing in the spirit while actually simply going through the motions is that they're not just lying to the community, they're also lying to God, they're pretending. Here's what John Stott says, they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor but to fatten their own ego. There is a word actually in the New Testament which is used for that and the word is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy means putting a mask on. It means doing something outwardly which does not correspond to your inward commitment. And Jesus, if he was condemning of any group of people in his ministry, it was the hypocrites. And moreover, it was the religious hypocrites. It was the people who did things in God's name, but without having God in their heart. And Jesus is incredibly severe on occasions with the religious hypocrites, the Pharisees, those people who pretended to be in a form of spirituality which actually simply ridiculed the real thing. And as a result, not only discredits completely the, 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 the real acts of faith, but also dissuades people from daring to believe that God could be real. And so Jesus tells parables where you have the the Pharisee and the publican, remember, in prayer. And in that parable, it is the Pharisee who prays to himself. He's not even praying to God, but he makes a show of it. But who is the one who is declared righteous? It's uh, It's the publican, it's the sinner, who simply is himself before God and saying, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. No clever prayers or the the widow's might remember? All these people putting in and making a big show of giving generously in the temple offering and the widow who comes along and gives one small coin. And what does Jesus say? He says, I tell you, she gave more than all the others combined. Because God looks at the heart and not at outward appearance. Time and again in Jesus' ministry, he condemns those who rely on appearance. Those who simply go through the motions because they are mocking God. Hypocrisy, that was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. And they end up mocking God. Peter says they are testing the spirit testing the spirit because it's the fruit of the spirit that's at work in the life of the church. And they are pretending to have the fruit without having the roots. And therefore there's a fundamental problem. And if that is to be allowed in the church, the whole of church life risks losing its fruitfulness. Do you see that? Because if one public act, which is actually an act of hypocrisy, is lauded and accepted without being challenged, then others will get the message that they can do the same. That it's all about outward appearance and yet the very heart of Jesus' ministry was to say the opposite. Paul, in his letters, comes from a slightly different angle. He talks about counterfeit. In talking to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he talks about counterfeit apostles. Those who set themselves up as leaders of the church and yet whose rootedness is not in Christ. And this is what he said, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was that it was counterfeit. It looked good, but it wasn't real. And here's the problem with counterfeit. First of all, it's like the real thing. Secondly, it is subtly but fundamentally different. Thirdly, it deceives and exploits because it promises what it cannot give. And fourthly, it destroys. Hypocrisy is the playground of Satan. Pretense, going through the motions, but the heart is far away. So Ananias and then Sapphira, they wanted to be on show, they wanted to be like Barnabas, that much we know, but they projected the image without the reality. It wasn't just ignorance, that's okay. Or lack of maturity, actually later on in the passage we got people who through lack of maturity just want to have the, the shadow of Peter fall over them. I mean, if superstition or what, but, but, but that's not condemned because that's just a lack of maturity. Everyone makes mistakes. This is persistent, persistent ridicule. Not taking God seriously but playing a game. The actions are there but the heart is far away. And that, it seems to me, is always a temptation for the church to go through the motions, to pretend that our trust is in God when actually our trust is elsewhere, to say we give ourselves, but actually to keep our comfort and our feet solidly on other ground. I guess the issue then that comes up through this passage is what is the church to be built on? Is it appearance or is it the work of Christ? Is it entertainment, a show, or the power of God? Is it an unholy spirit or the spirit of God? And so in our passage Peter confronts the lie with truth and the truth strikes Ananias and then his wife Sapphira in the heart because It is about the heart. Okay, so just a couple of thoughts to conclude. What can we learn from this? Well, I think probably the first thing we can learn is that we cannot play games with God. We live in a society which, and in a time and a day which has a tendency to trivialize faith, to privatize faith to oversimplify faith and its requirements. We don't talk about sin. We like comfortable religion. We live in a day where the line between truth and falsehood is blurred, where image is everything. What a warning that the people of God should be looking elsewhere for their identity. Our passage finishes with fear It says twice in the passage, great fear came upon the community. But you know in the Bible there are two types of fear. There is a fear that leads to death and there is a fear that leads to life. The fear that leads to death gives no form of hope and sadly Ananias and Sapphira discover that quite literally. But there is another type of fear which all through the Bible is about placing ourselves before God and taking him seriously, taking him at his word. Isaiah, do you remember? The call of Isaiah who finds himself absolutely on his face before God with a revelation of God's holiness and he says, woe am I, I am a man of unclean lips. And faced with that fear, God responds. God responds by cleansing him because the fear of God which is awe, which is profound respect, which is silence, brings life. It's repentance. It places our feet on a different path. Peter actually knew that at the beginning. Do you remember when he was called and and Jesus was there and, and there was no fish? And and Jesus says, cast your net on the other side. And they get so many fish that they don't know what to do with it. And Peter just breaks down in front of Jesus and he says, away from me, I am a sinful man. That's fear. That's right and holy fear. That's a fear that is freeing, that enables us to stand. It wakes us up. It touches and transforms our heart we need to discover that fear again. David knew that fear, do you remember? When he was confronted by Nathan the prophet having sinned and in Psalm 51 this is what he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Oh, create in me a new heart, O God. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Great fear. But the passage also ends with great faith because the fruit of the life of the church which rejects falsehood and deception and grounds itself in truth, and we know that truth is a person, Jesus Christ, is to bring enormous abundance. I'm really intrigued that um, this passage is about money. There's a moment at the end of um, uh, the Old Testament where God talks about testing. And the, um, Ananias and Sapphira are condemned for testing the spirit, but there's a positive sense of testing that comes out at the end of the, the, end of the Old Testament. But it's because uh, God is condemning the people for robbing him, for fraud. And this is what it says, Malachi chapter three. It says, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation. Because you are robbing me, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Great faith. In a God of blessing, fear and faith go together. Isn't it interesting how in the early church there's awe and fear and yet faith? The passage says that people don't dare go near them and yet at the same time more and more people are drawn into the church. Fear and faith, fear of God, faith in God and then we experience extraordinary blessing but you cannot have one without the other. Amen.